Hello, and welcome to another Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast coming to you from the Walter P. Ruther Library on the campus of Wayne State University. Thanks for listening. My name is Dan Galadner, your host, along with the arborist Troy Eller English. Now, why are you an arborist now, Troy? Why am I an arborist? I didn't know I was one. Uh, well, I, I think I, you are with your issues with trees. I'm currently uh, soliciting bids for taking down a large tree in my backyard before it falls on my house. Oh. Turns out it's very expensive. Very, very, very expensive. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Detroit went through all these heavy rains and flooding and everybody's, all the trees were falling down. Because so you're backed up. You're just part of the uh, the economy now for Detroit, helping yeah. cutting down trees. I'm sorry to hear about your tree, though. I look forward to planting the new one. There you go. Replace it with new. So someday someone will enjoy it later in life. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Cool. Anyway, we are talking today on our podcast about communists in Detroit specifically in the time period of the 1940s to the 1950s. And not that Cold War spy stuff. We're going to be talking about the extension, yes, the extension of the Popular Front, which essentially ended in 1939 with the hitler stalin pact. Brian Pentagill has written Communist and Community, Activism in Detroit's Labor Movement, 1941 to 1956. Now, Brian earned his PhD in history from Michigan State University in 2009. And now is currently is professor of history at Dallas College in Texas. And he adds to the growing literature that is coming out about communism and unions. And his work really shows a lot of what the party was doing after so many have thought that the party had no more real influence at all after, after 1939. Ryan, through some deep, solid archival research, shows how the party had direct influence in the activism to integrate bowling alleys, anti-police brutality, and other civil rights actions. He writes about how party members would push unions toward a more social justice alignment. They were like kind of like a conduit between the unions and policymakers. What we find out in this podcast is an understanding of how communists help form and mold labor relations lives of the workers beyond bread and butter issues or into that social issue area. So this book is great. Now, this is coming out around the time where everybody's thinking about the holidays. So this book would be great for the upcoming holidays for anyone who likes Detroit history, labor history, race issues, or for some of that good old leftist history. So sit back and relax while we talk to Brian Pentagill about his book, Communist and Community, Activism in Detroit's Labor Movement, 1941 to 1956. Hi, Ryan. How you doing? Thanks for being part of this podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Excellent. So let me just dive right in and talk about your book. I mean, what was the purpose of writing this book and why did you use Detroit as a backdrop? So I grew up in the shadow of a Buick plant in Flint, Michigan. And I'd always heard stories of how the UAW was so central in lifting the color line in places like Flint. Um, but nobody ever really explained how that was um, inside the factory, pushing for equality at the point of production, equality of opportunity. All of those things, you know, were, were relatively self-evident. But 
I wanted to focus more on what was happening on the outside of the factory. Uh, but even as a grad student, I didn't see, couldn't, wasn't really able to find too many works that, that really tackled that question, whether that was regional or not, uh, in any sort of direct matter. So as a grad student, I wanted to write then dissertation, now book, about the labor movement that was in the streets, uh, on the corners, and especially throughout the neighborhoods. Uh, now, you asked about why Detroit. Well, Detroit offers a really useful case in point because of its critical mass of heavy industry. Um, it was also very well known to labor radicals who were organizing there. I mean, a lot of my research, you know, it wasn't my focus, but it took me back as far as the uh, progressive era. So, you know, it was it was not lost on these people how and why Detroit was such a critical industrial center. And while I don't think that there's anybody out there that would fight you too hard with respect to why Detroit, Detroit is outside of the lens of where most historians and other scholars are going to really focus their attention on radicalism and in particular communist radicalism, and that'd be New York City. Um, similar to the case that someone like Randy Storch is gonna make uh, a little bit earlier, someone like Robin Kelly, this is taking that lens away from New York City and, and it's offering a much more unique, much more regional view of what communists were doing in a place like Detroit. Exactly. Exactly. So we, we we do hear a lot more about the Communist Party that's doing in New York City and um, sometimes even Chicago, but uh, we don't hear about Detroit. Um, I know there's going to be a book coming out shortly about uh, the Communist Party within the Teachers Union of Philadelphia. So historians are opening that lens, and thank you for doing that. Um, so why don't we just set up the conversation a bit of it and talk about what Detroit was like and what the Communist Party did in Detroit to gain such a foothold pre World War II. So that's a good question. And um, as you know, my book starts in 1941, uh, the outbreak of World War II. Uh, most, if, if, you've, if you've read my book, you know that I don't really delve into the political history of the party. It's there, but it's mostly on the periphery. So speaking of books that are coming out, there's going to be another book coming out about the Communist Party, more of a national approach, as I understand it written by someone who's actually reviewed my book, uh, a guy named Joshua Morris. And um, he does a lot of work with the CP in the 1920s. And the fact is the CP was active in places like Detroit in the 1920s, especially with respect to you know, labor unions that are trying to get themselves up and running off the ground. A good example, and I don't know how many historians would fight me on the auto workers union being the predecessor of the UAW. I, I think that you can kind of get into the gray area a little bit on that. But fact is the auto workers union, uh, communists uh, uh, were, were really, really central in the formation of that. And the issues and grievances that they brought forward uh, were, were mostly brought forward by these radicals. But in my mind, what really puts the Communist Party on the map with respect to just average Detroiters is going to come in 1932. This is the depths of the Depression. Um, this is that long, cold winter between Herbert Hoover and Franklin Roosevelt. 
And it's going to come um, not at City Hall. It, it's not going to come really even at the factory gates. It's going to come in the community. And of course, what I'm talking about is the Ford Hunger March. Okay. And so, you know, a little bit of context here. Uh, Henry Ford didn't miss too many opportunities to explain how and why the world would just be a better place if we'd all just listen to him and do it his way. And he's quoted on a number of different occasions in 31 and 32 that he had big plans to open up and hire, get everybody's hopes up only to just never really answer that bell. And so over the course of time, you get this organization, these organizations, I should say, called the Unemployed Councils. Now, they're not overtly communists. There, there are communists within them, but there's also socialists. There's people that you might think of union activists. It, it's, it's very much a hodgepodge of uh, activists, uh, most of whom are progressive. And what they do is they begin to call Henry Ford out. They draft a list of demands which in addition to demanding jobs, uh, keep in mind, that's what he was promising, demanding jobs, they also demand people like Henry Ford take more responsibility and be more proactive with respect to digging us out of this economic hole. Um, if you think back to the 1920s, and I don't mean 29, I'm talking about the, you know, the, the, the good times, the golden age of capitalism, you know, what comes to be known as the new capitalism, there's probably no better representation of welfare capitalism, of laissez-faire capitalism, and, and all of its benefits than Henry Ford. And, you know, when government gets out of the way, that's when the economy can really, you know, uh, hit on all cylinders, no, no pun intended. But in any case, they're demanding that he take more proactive role in restoring the economy. They demand things like food and, and other necessities. They're also calling out city officials as well. And it's really important to, to understand that this is taking place not in Detroit, but it's taking place in Dearborn, okay? Henry Ford's little, you know, municipal fiefdom. Many, you know, workers that were really important to his operation in Dearborn, they actually live in Detroit. And so here's Henry Ford, you know, reaping all the benefit of their labor, and he's not really doing much in the way of taxes or contributions to their welfare, because at the end of the day, they all take the train back to Detroit. And so this is not lost on these people. And when they march from Western Detroit into, uh, the, they're, they're trying to go to the headquarters to deliver their demands, they're met by first the police, uh, which is more or less owned and operated by the Ford company. And then they're met by Henry Ford's secret police force, um, uh, the Ford Service Department. And there are fatalities here. It, it, it devolves into a riot. Uh, initially, four people are killed. Uh, later on, a fifth would die of his wounds. And what comes out of the Ford Hunger March, although the communists were not you know, central in organizing the march itself, or at least not exclusively, right? they really took the bull by the horns with respect to um, you know, what, what would come as a protest afterwards. Uh, everything from bringing attention to, you know, the fact that these people that, that died were shot in the back, you know, they were fleeing the scene. It's not as if they were shot in the front. Uh, and also there's an African-American uh, protester that had died a little bit later, but uh, there's a controversy involving, can we lay him to rest in Woodmere Cemetery? 
And it was, it, it, it was Jim Crow at the time, and you couldn't do that. And the communists were really, really proactive in pushing that envelope. And that's something that you're going to see come later on uh, when, I, when I start talking about, you know, the activism in the 40s and the 50s as well. And so it's not as if, you know, 1943 rolls around, we've got a race riot in Detroit, and the communists are right there central trying to get some sort of, you know, uh, uh, calming mechanism or, you know, uh, integration going on, they have a long storied history of being the really the only predominantly white organization that even paid attention to civil rights. So uh, does that answer your question? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Now, before we were talking briefly, uh, before we started recording, and you mentioned a, a lack of attention in the area of understanding what the Communist Party within community organizing, you kind of mentioned right there, um, when, when most you know, historians as well as other people were, were, I've already believed that the popular front and that ended, the Communist Party was all but done after the Hitler-Stalin pact. Why do you think that is? And what did you discover while researching uh, kind of like that wow moment that there is some really amazing community activism that the Communist Party was doing? Okay. Um, another really great question. And, and I'll try to start it from the beginning of that question. Uh, the short answer is there really isn't a lot of primary documents that chronicle a sustained effort of community activism. They're really difficult to find. Um, I, I can talk about that a little bit later in this, um, in this podcast if we want to. But libraries and archives, in, including the Walter P. Ruther uh, um, uh, library have robust collections on the day-to-day -day activities of the UAW, and there's some great oral histories that were really helpful to me with respect to what these activists were doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, but but for, for me, the game changer really came about five, six years ago as I was listening to a radio program on Serious Progress. It was um, satellite radio. I don't know if you know the name Michelangelo Singarelli, but uh, he was discussing uh, uh, clear violations of civil rights violations in places like New York City. Uh, and, and generally what I'm talking about is monitoring Muslim American activities. Uh, you've got a, a cafe that's owned by an Egyptian American uh, New Yorker, and uh, you've got these undercover police officers that are going in, they're staking it out. It's that got this kind of capacity. Here's its main clientele base, its hours of operation. And I thought to myself, I bet that there were similar things going on in Detroit with Detroit's own anti-communist police force, which, as you might know, is referred to as the Red Squad. And as it turns out, they were. And so the Red Squad is, is like I say, is a special unit of the Detroit Police Department that's dedicated to uh, addressing communist agitators. Um, and it kept copious notes and issued detailed memos as to the activities of uh, these suspect, of those suspected either of belonging to the Communist Party or having some sort of abstract affiliation with it. And so in Detroit, two of the more prominent individuals within CP circles are Carl Winter and his wife, Helen Allison Winter. Uh, I had the uh, uh, good fortune of interviewing their daughter, Michelle Art, uh, when I was a grad student. And she donated their papers, their family collection to the Tamament Library in New York University. 
And the Winter Family Papers collection is absolutely overflowing with these Red Squad, I'll use some air quotes, memos. Um, and they detail what leftists, wh where they're holding their meetings, uh, what was being discussed at these meetings, uh, who was attending these meetings. And when I say detailed, I mean, they were actually doing things like noting the racial composition of these meetings and recording license plates, not only in the parking lot where this event's being held, but adjacent parking lots as well. And more importantly, for my purposes, these, these memos gave me a much better understanding of where, why, and how the CP launched some of their initiatives that were grounded in local concerns and enveloped causes in you know, issues involving social justice. And so it's in this way, that wow moment that you're talking about, it's in this way that I learned about Yemen's Hall or Schiller Hall or the Working Men's Cooperative Restaurant. Um, I'll talk about where the Ruther Library comes into that here in just a second, but uh, you know, I further learned about some of the ways in which the CP was reaching out to the community in an attempt to address concerns that were facing the working class, I'll, I'll use my air quotes again, uh, community in Detroit. So obviously, I focused on the war years and the immediate post-war period, but the holdings at the Tamament and also the, the, the Ruther, if you know where to look, are robust and they relate to community activism. They extend well into the 1960s. So again, that wow moment, while most of us kind of assume that this Nazi-Soviet pact that gets sort of signed in 19. 1939 is the death knell of the popular front, this, you know, loose affiliation of radicals and their more progressive allies, that that brand of activism, that time period in the CP is over. Well, well maybe from a political standpoint, but I'll tell you that the activism on a local level and a community level, it's very, very similar to the period that had preceded it. So um, speaking of collections that are really important that I made a lot of use out of in the book. Uh, I, I want to give a quick shout out to the Don Binkowski, excuse me, Don Binkowski collection. Um, a lot of what I came to know about an organization like the Working Men's Cooperative Restaurant, you, you know, I can tell that the CP is holding meetings there and I can even tell what they're meeting about, but I don't really have a lot of context uh, aside from that, it's, it's coming, it's taking the information from New York and combining it with what uh, Binkowski was able to kind of chronicle in Detroit and synthesizing the things. But um, as it turns out, these, these working men's co cooperative restaurant traced its roots all the way back in Detroit to the uh, IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World. And for the early 20th century, it was mostly the IWW headquarters in Detroit. So. You mentioned that you really are focusing on community activism, what's been going on, and you really honed in beautifully on the housing and police brutality that was going on in the 1940s. And I think one of the key things, and I'm not giving anything away here in your book, but you talk about the Sojourn Truth housing project. Why don't you give us that story and raise the awareness of what the what brought brought, brought all these people together about this housing project? So, you know, um, I'm going to start out in a place that I don't think that you expect me to start out, but uh, teaching at a community college, um, I, I want my students to sort of leave the class with 
at least a skeleton understanding of how we got to now. I mean, I don't have any premonition that everyone's going to go on to be a, become a historian or, or anything like that. But the fact is, you've got numerous historical watershed moments that are kind of converging when World War II, which is another historical watershed moment, comes to pass. And keep in mind that Detroit saw a massive influx of African-American uh, uh, migrants that were looking for work. Um, some of them are just looking to get out of the South, uh, whose conditions are absolutely, you know, abysmal with respect to a race relation standpoint. So, you know, the crisis, and I really would use the word crisis with respect to housing in Detroit, it didn't come out of nowhere. But when when you get the onslaught of World War II, you, you get another massive boom in, 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 in industry, and it's bringing people from, once again, all over the country that are coming to the arsenal of democracy to take advantage of these great uh, uh, opportunities in the defense industry. The problem is, you, you know, I, there, there really just never was a moment in the 20s where you saw a massive overhaul, which would uh, afford people a place to live. So there was already a housing shortage. That's followed by the Great Depression. And that's followed by the outbreak of World War II. And so, you know, eventually the government just is determined to find a place to put some of these newcomers, whether they be black or white, we have to build houses because if we don't build houses, we have no way of building the B-45, for example. And so there begins to be in late 1940, 1941, there begins to be this push to build uh, housing units for defense workers. And the question very quickly becomes, will these houses be open to African-American residents? Um, for, for all of its good talk about the arsenal of democracy, I think one of the things that a lot of these newcomers uh, learned very quickly after arriving was that Arsenal wasn't very democratic at the end of the day. And there were certain neighborhoods. I mean, Detroit's not that much different than virtually any other industrial center, north, south, east, or west. But the fact was that there were certain neighborhoods that African-Americans just simply were not, you know, welcomed. And ultimately, you know, they begin to have this controversy when the mayor of Detroit, a guy by the name of Edward Jeffries, uh, says we're going to put them in what comes to be known as the Sojourner Truth um, houses. And there's an organization uh, known as the Seven Mile uh, Fenelon Improvement Association. And it sort of portrays itself as more or less a neighborhood watch, neighborhood improvement association, keep everybody's lawns looking nice and neat and everything. But ultimately, it is rife with racists. There are card-carrying Klansmen that eventually get found out um, in the aftermath of the riot that are very influential. And in many cases, they enjoy leadership uh, roles and responsibilities. And so... What the mayor of Detroit does is he he's really in a tough situation. He goes back and forth a few times, but these progressives, and I, and I will include the communists in the term progressives, they will not let the matter die. So you see a convergence. You asked me about the groups. You see a convergence of organizations like the National Negro Congress, which certainly had its fair share of radicals um, that it ran around with. It's chaired in Detroit by the guy named by, by the name of LeBron Simmons. 
And the NNC is really instrumental in putting pressure on the city to open this up to black residents. You've got the Civil Rights Federation, which as the name suggests, kept an, uh, kept an eye on civil rights and civil liberties, uh, including integration in Detroit in this time period. And that's led by a guy who the Red Squad, the FBI, they're, they're never really sure if he's communist or not. They certainly have their suspicions. And in these memos, they make a very clear case that he runs around with these people. That guy is Jack Raskin. Okay, so the, the Civil Rights Federation is involved in this as well. And lastly, I'd say the last big player in this would be the, the Citizens Committee. And that's led by a local Baptist minister, African-American by the name of Reverend Charles Hill, who, um, although historians are aware of him, they, he doesn't get nearly the credit that he deserves with respect to the progressivism that he brought in this time period. And so Hill is, although the Red Squad is pretty fond of labeling him, um, painting him with a uh, communist brush, uh, his relationship and affiliation with the CP is very loose, but they, they noted him in several of those meetings that I was talking to you about as I was a second ago. So ultimately, all of this local activism, whether it's writing letters and telegrams into City Hall, whether it's packing city council meetings, whether it's just rallies and marches and demonstrations to keep the pressure on local officials, it pays off. And Jeffries does decide in 1941 that they are going to move Black families in. And of course, when that happens, uh, there, there's this really great photo in the book of this black family getting out of a moving van. And, you know, <laughs> those houses were a godsend to those people that needed some place to live. But very shortly after they began to unpack, there's this huge riot that if we can't go about this through legal mechanisms, then we're just going to go about it the old fashioned terroristic way. And it's, it's, the, it's the communist that's really central when it comes to trying to calm everybody down. And one of the ways that they do that is they begin to point out card-carrying members of the Klan uh, who are very active in some of these local home improvement associations. And you know, you'll see it again in the 43 race riot where they're sort of saying, listen, we need to come together because we've got a bigger fish to fry. And that's Hitler. That's the Japanese. And so we've got this emergency. We need these workers. This is this is national security here more than it is anything else. And it's a pretty innovative way to sort of get everyone to calm down and find a place for these uh, uh, these workers to stay as they perform such a critical uh, activity. You remind me of all these different stories from this book that other things that are related is like peeling back the onion. But the one thing is like when you mentioned before and you mentioned a bunch of guys, right? There is there is Stanley, but you don't mention the Stanley Nowak, but you mentioned Reverend Charles Hill. There's Coleman Young is in your book. He's mentioned many times, all legacies in Detroit and the United States. But yeah, again, they're men. But you do bring light in some of the women that contribute to the story, especially Elizabeth Hawes, who I didn't know about, which I was really glad that you brought her up because in a previous podcast, we interviewed Dr. Victoria Grieve about our upcoming work of the women who wrote for the Federated Press. So I was especially attracted to her story. Let our listeners know about her. She, you call her the intellectual of the labor movement. 
So um, I'm really happy that you asked me this question because uh, Elizabeth Hawes is one of my favorite people, really my favorite people, but certainly one of my favorite people in the book. Hawes was born in New York and she became a fashion designer. As a matter of fact, that's the, the career that she would go back to after she was done in Detroit. And so she grows up in New York and in the early war years, um, she takes a job in, I believe it was a screw factory. Uh, They made screws for the war in in New Jersey. And she developed this fascination with unions. I mean, just bastions of democracy and, you know, how great they could be. And the people don't even realize how much power they have and how scared the establishment is of them. And she just loves it, can't get enough of it. So she takes a job in the later stages of the war, uh, moves to Detroit, which you talk about a fish out of water with respect to a New Yorker moving to Detroit. Um, there's there's one, one of my favorite um, uh, uh, opinion pieces that she wrote for the Free Press was a piece called Detroit, I Love You Despite Your Fascism, right? And so, you know, there's just certain things that you take for granted, Central Park in New York, but she don't exactly do those sorts of things when you get to Detroit. So she was also a writer and she wrote this really great book. I encourage every, it's not the easiest thing to find, but if you can get a copy of it, I really recommend it. It's called Hurry Up, Please, It's Time. Hans is one of those people that never really officially joined the Communist Party. But from my perspective, she does a great job of explaining, you know, how effective it was to work with these people. Um, she calls some of them common, excuse me, common communists. In other words, they're not the party line carriers per se, right? They care about the Soviet Union, but they're not going to live and die by what goes on in Moscow. These are people that you can agree to disagree with respect to their political orientation. But if you need someone to make the sandwiches, if you need someone to clean up the halls, if you need someone to do the grunt work, the common communists are who you want to work with. And she represents a wonderful case in point when it comes to popular front activism. She wasn't a member of the party, but she worked very well with people who were. But back to my point, back to your question. Um, In addition to picking up a job at the Detroit Free Press writing editorials for them, she also is given a job within the UAW, and I believe it's with their education department, and her job is to reach out to women and explain to women why it's either important for them themselves to join the union, right, there's some feminism there, or why it's important for them to join their Uh, husbands and support their husbands with respect to joining the union. I mean, understand it's it's 1935, it's 1940. Unionism is not nearly as fixed to the American economy as we like to think that it is. And this is a bold move and it could cost you your job. And that's obviously something that's going to be brought up around the dinner table. So she is a real mover and shaker within the UAW, does a great job for them, even though I wouldn't really put her in Ruther's camp. Uh, But what I like about her, especially with respect to a labor union intellectual, uh, is her opinion pages at the Free Press. The first piece that she writes discusses how when this war ends, we need a 30-hour work week. And she explains we need a 30-hour work week because the women need to keep their jobs. And she does it in a way that I think everybody knows exactly what she's driving at, right? 
uh, you know, a man's world, so to speak. But she does it in a way where she says, no, you men deserve to spend some time at home and enjoy the, the joys of, of, of fatherhood. We've got too many men that don't see their children. We've got too many women that would like to get out there and put their skills to work in the workforce. And, you know, she even delves into the patriotism, save the economy sort of thing. You know, we're all supposed to go out and buy this new car in the aftermath of the war. And if we want to keep everyone fully employed, we need a 30-hour work week. I mean, think about how many birds this is killing with one stone, right? You've got equality of opportunity, especially when it comes to gender. You've got, you know, a full, a fully employed economy, which was obviously near and dear to the heart of someone like Franklin Roosevelt. Um, and you've got... Um, uh, uh, more, what might be thought of as uh, more time for what we will, what the Knights of Labor were driving at, you know, almost 100 years before all of this. So anyway, uh, she writes for the free press for a number of years, but that first editorial I was telling you about, it received so much response. So many people wrote into the free press that the free press literally had to hire a, a, at least one more employee just to process all this stuff. And some of these people are like, you know, hats off. You've done a wonderful job. Good for you. Great job on this. And there are other people, as you might imagine, that want to give her a piece of their mind and say something to the effect of men should be treated like men, you know, whatever that means, and, and not as housewives. So, you know, she's really pushing an envelope. And in a way, I see Elizabeth Hawes as way ahead of her time when it, when it comes to the post-world world that she envisioned. And that vision very much dovetails with what some on the left are pushing for in the aftermath when, when we can very clearly see that the German days are numbered in the war, the Japanese days are numbered, and we're beginning to look at what a post-world world would, would, would look like. Now, I would love to end this on a happy note, but it's not a happy note. Um, Elizabeth Hawes is essentially a casualty of what we'll call the second Red Scare. Now, I don't really understand the reasons that she left Detroit. Um, her biographer uh, uh, doesn't really seem to understand that either. Um, but nonetheless, she lands back in New York. And we, we are talking about the budding of the McCarthyist age. And, you know, your affiliation with leftists and leftist organizations, whether that meant that you paid your dues or like her, you just talk to people and you had civil conversations with them. It really put a strain on relationships and, um, you know, it, it cost her some friendships. Uh, I believe it also caused, if you read her book, Hurry Up, Please, It's Time, um, I, I also believe it cost her, uh, you know, some, some career opportunities, whether that be in, in writing and publishing or fashion. So, Yeah, I, I, I started digging into more of her life and um... It ends sadly as well. She ends up uh, dying in the Chelsea Hotel in the the seventies, right along with all the other rock and rollers that were dying in the seventies in the Chelsea Hotel. Um, well, well, let's 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 segue into like to talk about the UAW. I mean, UAW was a very progressive union, as we saw in the thirties and uh, mid forties, up to the mid forties, with the leadership of Thompson, um, and then. Thomas, I mean, but then it strips back and you, you strip back the facade of the UAW and you bring up the ideas of what the rise of Walter Ruther and the ideas of this business union model and the purging of the communists. So this kind of segues right to what you're saying is like, what was happening in the late 40s with the new unions, especially the UAW? 
of pulling back their support and their alignment with not just the Communist Party, but the far left type thing. Um, the book that I want to reference as far as that goes is uh, Dan, Dan Clark's uh, Disruption in Detroit. Uh, I believe it was published in 2018, but, but what Dan does is he interviews dozens and dozens of auto workers that had jobs in Detroit in the late 40s, early 1950s. And what he finds is that this is an incredibly unpredictable period. Um, employment is anything but steady. People would make just enough headway to get themselves close to a down payment on a house and they'd be laid off and they'd have to start all over anew. Um, that's to say nothing of, you know, fringe benefits that are just beginning to become what you and I think of fringe benefits as being. And so I guess what I'm getting at here is at about the time that Ruther takes the reins of the UAW, right? He, he's got a lot of things that are crashing down on him all at the same time. And so I'll use Dan's book as sort of a, you know, catalyst to take us in this direction we like to think, or I would go so far as we assume that Ruther and the UAW got everything that they wanted from management, right? They got their, what was it, 20% per hour raise. And that was really when you saw the blossoming of a blue collared middle class that could afford to send their kids to college in the cottage up north. But the fact was, that was not the case. And I think that he does a very good job in explaining that. And it, it makes Ruther's hands very full with respect to exactly what he was trying to do to help and to save, you know, the union. So he has a lot on his plate is what I'm trying to say. At the same time, um, you are talking about the early night or excuse me, the, the, the late 1940s, early 1950s. We're beginning to see the crystallization of the Red Scare. And so in the book, I talk about Taft-Hartley Act in 1947. And this is what I was referring to a minute ago about things that are flying under the radar. What the Taft-Hartley Act ultimately does is it basically transfers from the federal government, right? Unions are legal, and it allows a lot of that regulation to go to the state level. And so you begin to see the rise of what we would call right-to-work states. Again, there's a lot of confusion here. I've even got colleagues that'll tell you, well, you can't have a union in Texas, which would come as a great surprise to a lot of those UAW members in Arlington, Teamsters in Dallas. And so it's not that simple. Uh, but it makes it a lot more difficult to have a union, okay? That was by design. Keep in mind, the business community had been kicked to the curb and spent a you know, couple decades wandering in the political wilderness in the aftermath of the crash of 1929, right? Liberalism really was riding high. And so the late 40s is his opportunity to kind of get back because a lot of people, conservative Democrats, including individuals like Lyndon Johnson, teaming up with Republicans to, to kind of get out in front, labor has too much power and we need to bring this back somehow, rein them in. We can do that by Taft-Hartley. We can do that by allowing state governments like Texas and Arkansas to kind of govern how easy or not it is to form a union, okay? Now, as you may know, there's another element to Taft-Hartley, which is overtly anti-communist. You cannot be a leader of a union if you're a known member of the Communist Party. 
And even if you're a leader, but you're a little bit wishy-washy with respect to who you're having conversations with at lunch, they want you to sign non-communist affidavits. But there's one thing I really want to point out before we go any further, and that is by the late 1940s, the, the Communist Party in the United States posed virtually no threat to big business in the United States. It was riddled with factionalism. It had all kinds of internal problems. It was tiny. There is no way that the Communist Party really posed a viable threat to an organization like General Electric, okay? But it did offer a really unique opportunity to attack not communism, but liberalism, okay? The way that I see it is that this anti-communist within union attitude was really the cover, right? That was sort of the excuse to come after liberals, whether that is to ask them, you know, who are you affiliating with? Uh, what did you think that you were doing when you attended this rally or that cause or whatever, right? Or whether that is to oust somebody, an effective union leader that once upon a time, and, and Ruther is one of these individuals that once, ahead of, once upon a time had a complex relationship with the local communist party. It puts labor leaders like Walter Ruther, who by 1947 is probably best described as a liberal, puts them in a really awkward position in that now they have to kind of justify, you know, who they're hanging out with. And in the end, I think what happens is people make a calculated decision. Uh, the left, including the communists, they, they represent some baggage and they represent a threat to the viability of industrial unionism and they got to go. And Ruther, it's not clear to me that he was simply holding his nose and pulling the lever with respect to ousting communists and, and really, you know, cleaning house, so to speak, or whether he was consolidating his power. You know, for the good of the order, our friend um, uh, Elizabeth Hawes does believe that he was an opportunist and he was using Taft-Hartley and other anti-communist measures to kind of consolidate his power and his control on UAW politics because he's going to go on to become a really entrenched and powerful labor leader within the, 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 the movement and for the next several decades. So, um, we got, we got two more questions for you. Okay. One is, 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 um, what do you hope, um, people will take away from your book or actually what hope do you think this book will lend to the general public or even future organizers that mark? That part. Well, I mean, I hope that what it does is it gives some context and it gives some sort of background information with respect to people who understood the world. They, they understood the stakes of some of the things that they got involved in and they cared about it. And they they were proactive in advocating for what they saw, a, a the potential of a better world. I'm also really hopeful that this will demonstrate that unions and unionism, um, and, and I'll throw, you know, organizations that are deeply, you know, concerned with and uh, sympathetic to the, the plight of workers, right? And, and certainly people like Charles Hill would, would, would be one of those individuals, um, that, that their activism and why they matter doesn't just stop at the point of production. Um, there's no better case that I think that we can make with respect to the small d democracy that organizations like the UAW was able to bring other than its fight against racism. I mean, it, it was one of the more forceful 
you know, organizations that pushed back against uh, racism, um, not not just on a national level, but but locally in Detroit. Uh, one of my favorite parts of the book, certainly from a research perspective, is the role that the UAW played in integrating union league bowling. Right, you've got you've got this great opportunity to bring people of all walks of life together. Everybody likes bowling, right? The problem is the bowling alleys in Detroit, right up to the organization that governs, you know, organized bowling is deeply committed to Jim Crow segregation. And it's the union that basically says you can take our millions of dollars that we want to spend on these tournaments or you can not. And the not translates into you know, the All-American Bowling Tournament, which is basically the UAW's boycott of uh, uh, organized bowling because they won't allow black workers and white workers to roll in the same lanes. Now, ultimately, by the time that this rubber really hits the road, people like Walter Ruther have sort of given their implicit blessing to go ahead and be forceful with this. But this is coming primarily from the left of the UAW. These are unionists, and sometimes they're people like Elizabeth Hawes, who weren't exactly known communists, but they certainly had conversations with them. It's not something that really you know, starts out in the more conservative elements of the UAW. More importantly, the brand of activism that they bring to integrate bowling is very much grounded in the community. A lot of the problem is they would go to these bowling alleys and say, we want to roll next to each other. What can you do for us? And the proprietor would say, well, you know, I don't care on a personal level. I don't care who's bowling together, but I feel like if I, you know, were to do this, people like, you know, these home improvement organizations I was talking about a minute ago are going to go out there and, and this is just simply going to ruin my business. And so that's the, that that's the community element that people on the left are, are, are bringing. And this is happening years into the post-war period. As a matter of fact, I think it's 1950 that we finally get integrated bowling as we would all recognize integrative bowling. So, yeah. <laughs> It's always the simple things that bring people together, isn't it? Sure. Sports or something like that. It reminds me of that book, uh, Bowling Alone. Yeah. Um, we, we stopped doing these communal things and stopped talking to each other. And yeah. here we are today, not talking to each other whatsoever. Anyway, that's a whole different conversation. Usually on our show, we always like to know what kind of collections you use at the Ruther Library. And you mentioned Don Binkowski papers, which is our, are huge. But also we want to know where you also went to uh, do your research because other researchers might be wanting to dig into the similarities. Yeah, so let me let me let me start out with the Ruther because um, I'd say sixty to seventy five percent of my sourcing did come from from the Ruther. So the Don Binkowski collection is really good, as you mentioned. It's small, but if you know what you're looking for, it can be immensely immensely helpful. Um, if you're looking for communist activism within the shops um, and the purging of communists from their jobs in the early 1950s, highly recommend the Edith Van Horn collection. There's all kinds of gems in that. Um, we've been talking about Maurice Sugar. There's all kinds of legal documents that you'll find in the Maurice Sugar collection. If you want to focus more on the cultural side of things, that is that that really is a treasure trove. It's one of my, you know, things on my to-do lists 
put all this stuff together, but inevitably I always get interrupted by, you know, whether it's a pesky student or a pesky colleague, you know, so anyway, <laughs> uh, there's that. But, um, you know, if you're looking for more communist activism and what they were doing on a day-to-day basis, highly recommend the Ganley Wellman collection, which again is small, but one of the things I found, I simply couldn't believe nobody else had picked up on this, where it was um, uh, uh, Nat Ganley's ticket stub collection, right? These were literally ticket stubs to fairs, festivals, events that were sponsored by the Communist Party. They said where in terms of address, so now I know exactly where this is taking place, um, who their target audience is. In some cases, they would hold dances, New Year's Eve festivals. That was always a big deal for the communists. Uh, They were taking place at Schiller Hall. Um, what time they ended, you know, the kind of things, whether this is just drinking beer and singing songs and other cases, they had baseball and pony rides and you get the idea. So that's very, very rich. And, and, and I would also say there's still a lot of juice to be drained for some of those, um, some of those sources. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the Sam Sweet collection has been very helpful. The Shel- uh, the uh, Shelton Taps, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but yeah. uh, Taps collection, very, very helpful. Um, you know, a lot of what I got out of civil rights uh, and the UAW is coming from, you know, the UAW Fair Practices and Anti-Discrimination uh, collection. The Walter P. Ruther collection is, is just so vast that you can't help but running into issues involving civil rights and equality on the shop floor. But again, I think the trick with Ruther's collection is to know what you're looking for exactly you know what brand of activism or exactly what event that you want to focus on because you're going to find names right and you're going to see mm-hmm. names over and over and over and over again that's how i came to know elizabeth hawes is i just kept on seeing her name pop up over and over and over again and ultimately it forced me to dig deeper um but the ruther if you're focused on you know the social element of unionism it's still got plenty of collections i mean i haven't even hit the tip of the iceberg right. uh, but it's still got plenty of good sources uh to 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 keep you busy and to uncover you know other unknown stories or 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 lesser known or forgotten stories that are really important to where we are with the history of labor and uh, working class americans today now um, I'll also take this opportunity to kind of uh, uh, mention a few other libraries that um, that were really, really effective to me. Uh, first and foremost, uh, the Tamament Library in New York. Uh, it's not nearly as focused with respect to the UAW or Detroit, but the fact that Michelle Art did leave her family's papers there, um, it's a blessing and a curse in the sense that Uh, Those are really rich collections. The Winter Family Papers, very, very rich collections, but New York is not the easiest place to get to, right? Especially considering the last time I spoke to her, we we had a conversation in Southfield. So, um, you know, (laughs) coulda, shoulda, woulda, but that's another story. Uh, The the Tamament Library also has other collections as well. Um, You know, if you're looking for, for example, Detroiters that maybe went over and fought in the Spanish Civil War, against Franco, uh, there's, there's a really vast collection on the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. So again, if you know names, that's been going to be very helpful when you when you when you uh, uh, book your hotel to, for New York. 
Uh, also, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the MSU Special Collections uh, at uh, uh, in, in East Lansing. Uh, American Radicalism, that collection is very, very vast. Uh, I learned a lot about your local communist, uh, um, uh, Saul Wellman, Nat Ganley, the trial that I talk about uh, toward the end of the book, the trial of the Michigan Six. Uh, it's got the transcripts for you know, those court proceedings and exactly what uh, Ernest Goodwin, who's a really famous Detroit lawyer, thought he was doing when, you know, he was defending uh, these communists for violation of the Smith Act. You can't be a member of the Communist Party. Uh, so MSU Special Collections, you get a lot of mileage out of that as well. In Ann Arbor, uh, you've got the Bentley Collection, and that has the papers of Reverend Charles Hill. And similar to the Tam in New York, there's all kinds of Red Squad memos uh, that discuss what he was up to, what he was using the Hartford Avenue Baptist Church for. Um, you also have some of the things that were near and dear to his heart, in, including um, uh, this uh, uh, concerned citizens. I'm going to get the name wrong. It was something to the effect of concerned citizens for blight removal. Okay, if you read people, including people like Kevin Boyle, that are talking about what's happening to Detroit in the late '50s, early '60s, when those expressways go up, the black community got lost. Right, uh, that simply went away. And Hill is one of the first people to kind of put two and two together that in some cases, I'll use his words, not mine, blight removal is akin to Negro re removal. And so, mm -hmm. you know, you're seeing the gutting of a black community, which is making a bad situation worse. Uh, so the Bentley collection is very effective. Again, you need to know what you're looking for going into there. And, and last, but certainly, certainly not least, would be the Burton Historical Collection over at the Detroit Public Library. Those mayor's papers collections are really, really important, especially getting a sense in terms of what the communists were trying to do with respect to forcing the city of Detroit to be more proactive in civil rights, be more proactive in the day-to-day -day welfare of Detroiters, whether they were working or otherwise. Um, very, very effective with respect to what I was doing in Sojourner Truth. Very, very effective when you've got, uh, you know, Mayor Kobo that takes over in the early 50s and the beginning of the McCarthy age. Um, it was very, very illuminative with respect to that activism, at least locally in Detroit, did not end. So can't say enough good things about the Burton collection and the people over there at the Detroit Public Library. They were very helpful as well. Very good. All right. We have a good lay, lay ground of digging into more progressive era all over the place. Thank you to you, Ryan. Thanks for doing all this digging for us. Um, your book is excellent. I appreciate it. And I appreciate you taking the time to hang out with us. Well, again, I thank you for the invitation. Been looking forward to it. And uh, I very much enjoyed this conversation. So thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library and Archives of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers are Dan Galadner and Troy Eller English. The music was composed by Bart Bilmer. 
And of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. For more information, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. You know about the strikes coming up, possibly? Which 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 group? So yeah, which which one? <laughs> Kellogg's is striking. They're out. Hollywood's. It it's the yeah it's the it's the behind the scenes people. No, mm-hmm. it's it's uh, we were thinking about going to see Love, and if there's a strike, we can't go because mm-hmm. the union represents you know, technicians and makeup people. Instead of going to the Love, maybe we'll be walking a pickup. <laughs> like the good gladders do.